0: A reading this morning from the book of Galatians. There is a pew Bible provided for you and there if you have your copy of God's Word. Galatians 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 24 of Galatians 1. Again a reading from Galatians 1 11 through 24. <laughs> Verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. But I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea. They only heard it said, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. And let us ask for God's help this morning. Father, teach us now what we do not know. And through your spirit, give us that which we do not have and make us into that which we are to be. And we ask this for Christ and his sake. Amen. The first thing we need to notice today as we continue our study and walk through the book of Galatians is the similarity that exists in, verse, in the language of verses 1 and in verses 12, now I didn't read verse 1, we've read it the last two Sundays. Right there in your Bible, if you look up at verse 1, you'll see there is some similar language between verse 1 and verse 12. Verse 1, Paul defends his apostleship, his apostolic office, his apostleship. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Then drop down to verse 12. Here he defends his gospel. There he says, quote, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you see the similar language between the two verses. Paul's apostleship is not from man, verse 1. Verse 12, his gospel is not from man. But rather on the contrary, he has said that the risen Christ is, Who was much more, though not less, than a man, the risen Christ had commissioned him as an apostle and revealed to him the gospel which Paul was preaching. Now, the two verses are similar because for Paul, the truth of his apostleship and the truth of his message stand and fall together. If Paul was no apostle, then he could claim no spiritual authority, and thus the truth he preached would have collapsed. Likewise, if his gospel proved to be just a human invention, a human ideology, a human concoction, then he would have had to forfeit his right to even be called an apostle because he wasn't preaching Christ and his apostles' message. So his apostleship and his message stand and fall together. Now, the question we have to ask as he writes in this last section of chapter 1 in his letter to the churches of Galatia, We have to ask, why has he gone on the defensive like this? You just read those texts. It seems like he's defending himself. Well, the reason is because of what we looked at last week when we looked at verses 6 through 10. But verse 7 of last week, you probably have it there in front of you, says this. There are some who trouble you and want to distort. That is change. Some versions uh, translated as pervert the gospel of Christ. And we looked at that last week. A group called the Judaizers who really, let's just call them what Acts 15.5 called this group, Pharisees. They had come in and they were teaching that Paul preached a false, that is a pseudo, a counterfeit gospel. But in order for these men to change the gospel, in order for them to do that, they had to discredit Paul's gospel the gospel upon which the Galatian churches were founded. Remember, Paul had taught them the gospel and he had planted the churches of Galatia that he's writing this letter to. And so their founding pastor is having to defend his ministry to them because these Pharisees have come in and begin to try and discredit him. We know that they were emphasizing circumcision. Matter of fact, if you go to Galatians five two, you can see that. And they were emphasizing the keeping of the ceremonial laws. That's chapter 4, verse 10 of Galatians. You can see that there. And so these were Pharisee Christians, and I mean Christians in the loose sense of the term, who were going around adding, as we saw last week, works to grace, law-keeping as a covenant for salvation. And they were saying that, Paul, he's just a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. He was, born, he, didn't, he, he, he was born out of due time. He did not walk with those original apostles in Jerusalem during the three years of Jesus' life. And when you look later in uh, chapter ahead, in chapter 2, verse 9, you'll find that these people were basically claiming that the pillars of Jerusalem, who were at the time Paul was writing Peter, James, and John, that, that the Pharisees would claim them as their authority. And so they would look at Paul and say, Paul, you're just a Johnny-come-lately. You weren't with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And you're going around Galatia and all the Gentile regions of Palestine starting churches in the name of the Messiah. And yet you've messed up the message. You're supposed to be telling them that they've got to not only believe in Jesus but also get circumcised and keep the law. So these people would claim more proper apostolic authority and then go in behind a legitimate apostle, claiming that authority that they thought they had, and they would start changing the message of the gospel, which was not just simple faith in the finished work of Christ, but rather Christ plus circumcision and law keeping. So they've set out, in essence, to go set all these little Galatian churches straight. (laughs) The irony here is they're the ones who are crooked. I think their argument probably went something like this to the Galatians. Paul may claim to be an apostle, but he's not really one. He may claim to preach the true gospel, but he only had it, he heard of the gospel maybe secondhand from the true apostles in Jerusalem. And his version, you know, he botched. It's seriously flawed. Do you not hear this still today when you hear particularly theologically, not politically, theologically liberal theologians, talk about how much they hate the Apostle Paul and his message. They hate his gospel. And they say, all of them, in unison, he messed it up. But Jesus and the apostles, early apostles started, when Paul came around, he took it and went in the wrong direction. Well, look, nothing's new under the sun these Pharisees were saying it about Paul in his day and in the 21st century liberal theologians are saying it today the situation I've just painted for you in the first century though is the situation that makes the most sense out of Paul's double defense verse 1 I'm an apostle just as much as Peter why because the risen Christ appeared to me just as he had appeared to the others In verse 12, my gospel is true, just as true as Peter's, because I did not learn it from a mere man secondhand and then mess it up, but rather I received it as much from Jesus as those first apostles did. you remember Acts chapter 9 when Jesus appeared in his resurrected glory to Paul? No, he wasn't with the original band, but he still had the risen Christ himself, just as the others did. And so he can say, my apostleship is from Christ, and my message is Christ's authentic message. Now, I think verse 12 in our text this morning is an argument for verse 11. Verse 11 again, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is arguing in verse 12 for the truth of his message, truth of his preaching. His gospel, as I've said, is not a human concoction. It is not his own messed up private interpretation and version of something he might have picked up from the other apostles in Jerusalem. It is not, as verse 11 says, according to man. And I think when he says that this gospel is not according to man, he means probably two things. First, his message didn't originate with man. It originates with God. It didn't come from Paul's head. He didn't think it up as just another uh, human ideology. Rather, this came straight and directly from the heart of God, the message that he preached. Paul says this in no uncertain terms in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul identifies himself and his gospel this way. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the, guess what? The gospel of God. The good news of God. The gospel, he says, not a human, not a human invention. Doesn't find its source and origin in the church. God planned and performed and brought about the gospel, it's the gospel of God. But when verse 11 in our home text says that Paul's gospel is not according to man, second, it also probably means that the gospel doesn't square well with our natural human desires. Think about it the gospel is a call to what repent of your sin and place your faith in someone else does that square with native human tendencies I'm not bad I'm not a sinner or at least I'm not as bad as you know Joe Blow the ragman from Bossier City over here who I've seen drunk every night sitting outside of a juke joint somewhere In the, I don't even know if they have those anymore even in the country places I'm not as bad as that guy I saw on TV that was a pedophile. I'm not as bad as that student who went crazy and, went and shot up a bunch of people. I'm not even as bad as my lying wife. <laughs> Ex-wife probably. in that scenario. No matter how bad you think some, worse someone is, worse you think someone is than you, you've really got to look at yourself under the light of the law of God and the gospel does that. It calls you to deal with your own sin, not someone else's sin. Paul went around preaching a message that people were sinful and were in need of placing their faith in a Savior, and it's not them. It was someone else, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That flies in the face of our native human desires. If we've discovered that we've done something wrong, we're the ones that want to make it right, and we will justify and help ourselves. But when it comes to the arena of God, us To him the vertical axis of life as i like to call it we can't help ourselves there are things we need to make right when we're wrong others absolutely but between us and god paul was teaching that only god could single-handedly save you from your sins and so this is not according to man man likes to be and we talk about it still in our country today self-made not god made I think also there's an implication here and the implication is that these Pharisees who had adjusted the gospel did so in order to make it fit better with their own native human desires and proud inclinations. As a matter of fact I'll let you turn with me a few pages over to Galatians chapter 6 to the right in your Bible Galatians 6 and verse 12 and let's read what Paul says about those Pharisees. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised. And that in, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There you see it. They were changing the gospel. Why? Paul says in verse 12. Because their gospel was in accordance to man. They wanted to save themselves. Self-preser- self-preservation, Right? They wanted to save themselves from the persecution that comes from proclaiming a gospel like Paul preached. <laughs> if I was making up a gospel, it would be about coming to my downtown apartment, eating buffalo wings, drinking beer, and worshiping me. But Paul instead makes, doesn't make up a gospel. He's given a gospel that's all about, Hey, this Jewish carpenter from Bethlehem, Ephrata, raised in Nazareth in total obscurity, Kept the law of God perfectly. Never sinned a day in his life. And he is the answer because guess what? That perfect man shed his perfect blood for your sins. And if you'll go by faith, wash yourself in Emmanuel's blood, you're going to be saved. And you got to cling to that. You can't see the blood. You can't even physically see your sin. But you got to come rest all your trust and hope on it. And guess what? It's going to change your life. Who makes up that kind of a message? Look at the panorama of ideologies and religions all over the world. Nobody makes that up. I believe that that speaks then to the authenticity of Paul's message. Because it is unique. It sticks out like a sore thumb in history. The gospel I preached is not man's gospel. For man wouldn't make that gospel up. And when Paul preached it, what do we know from history? He was horribly persecuted. The gospel is so other than man and man's inclinations and thoughts that when the gospel begins to be rightly grasped by some people, even on the intellectual level, they begin to kick against it. You know it. You see the hostility against the gospel on social media feeds, in the courtroom sometimes. tyranny in other nations where the gospel is completely banned. Everything else can go. Any other ideology or religion is good, but Christianity is outlawed. Why is that? It's the gospel of God. It is antagonistic to our selfishness. It threatens it. Paul was in Galatia, remember? Acts chapter 13 we looked at last week, and he was stoned to death in Lystra. God raised him from the dead and sent him back to preach to his persecutors. Paul knew what he was speaking of. He had been persecuted, but these Pharisees, they adjusted the gospel so that they would get away from the persecution. The other Jews, wouldn't, the unbelieving Jews, wouldn't persecute them. Why? Because they were still telling these Christian Jews to get circumcised Follow the law. And that took away the offense of the cross in the Jewish mind. Keep all of your Jewishness, but add little Jesus to it. Paul says that softened the gospel and preserved them from pain. Now, let's pause for a moment. Continue to let what he's saying here sink in. Because what I see before me in this text are two things. The two, there's always in a text of scripture when you're examining it there's always a central theme and a secondary theme there's something before you and something behind the other theme and here I think the main thing is truth and the secondary subject before us in the text is authority these are the two central issues Paul's also said that there are two messages in this passage vying for our allegiance Paul's message and the Judaizers' messages are often called the Pharisees' message. Well, according to verses 8 and 9 that we looked at last week, in these two messages, heaven and hell hang in the balance. Only one of those two Gospels can be true. And believing the true one is the most important thing in the world for every man, woman, and child who will ever be born. And so Paul is forcing. The issue of truth and authority here. And I have to pause and say, there's really a lesson for us here. We should be at Wadesboro the kind of people for whom truth matters. Our culture, I'm convinced, communicates just the opposite. More now than ever, maybe. Everywhere you turn, in the media or on social media, or maybe even in your personal lives, in the sphere of influence and people that you're around, It seems, and test this this week, it seems that almost everybody has a gospel to share. They have an ultimate word on the good life. Whether it's something as extreme as Antifa or QAnon. Two extremes, right? People want to bring about a utopian lifestyle through political maneuvering and power war. And it might not be that extreme, these different gospels that run around today. It might be something on the fringe, something like the joy of jogging, or the delight of organic dieting. Someone might say, you know, self-assertion and work, 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 work. Capitalism is the gospel, ultimately, that makes you good. Some are going to say socialism will be the gospel that makes us all. People have their opinions today, and they assert them as if they're objectively and absolutely universally true. The world is rife with opinions about, quote, quote, the good life. But whenever I hear people so assertive saying these things, underneath what they're saying, I have a question. I hear their opinions, but what I'm not hearing from them is a solid statement about the basis of those opinions. I mean, it seems like the barrage of unfounded opinions communicate to us today that truth doesn't really exist or matter. That one opinion is as good as the next. So let me ask, when was the last time that you heard someone make an effort to clarify and defend their foundational understanding of reality, which might even make their convictions plausible as they assert them? Most people probably regard, and actually I'll quote verbatim John Piper here, most people probably regard a concern for well-founded truth as a stage in later adolescence, in the collegiate years, that someone begins to deal with after a few sociology and philosophy classes and perhaps after some heady nights. And then they go into real daily adult life and no longer do those questions of whether or not something is true and coherent matter anymore. Because all that matters is keeping up with the Joneses. And so most people aren't driven bananas by the thousands of unsupported opinions that passes gospel in the media, end quote. I think John's right. Most people haven't thought through the presuppositions that underpin their opinion about the good life and what we all should be doing and what purpose and meaning is all about but let it not be so among us. I think for the people of God, truth matters terribly. And it must not sit well when people make assertions about ultimate reality, but yet they have no coherent worldview that can give plausibility to their view of ultimate reality. Now, how do we deal with this? The fact that things are the way they are. Because you know what's going to happen. As soon as you start speaking the gospel, you're going to experience what Paul experienced. You're going to experience persecution. In this country, usually it just takes the form of verbal insults. Or, you're not intelligent. Uh, that's crazy. I've been called crazy. I remember pre- I was sitting at a Uh, coffee house one time in new orleans a coffee house i love actually and uh, a guy came sat down and you're christian he's like i hate christians and i had to start the conversation there and then you start talking about the goodness of christ and they're going to come at you and they're going to do something to you that they never do to themselves typically speaking they're going to ask you critical questions about the presuppositions that you brought to the table to put together your worldview critical questions and and you're going to have to answer those questions and I know as I say that it sounds threatening to you because it sounds like I'm asking you to become a high powered intellectual. Well friends that becoming a high powered intellectual is not the ideal of the Christian life. It's actually a little simpler than you think. You're in a better position than you think you are to deal with these critical secular threatening questions. When they begin to probe your view of reality And they begin to say, how can you even begin to believe what you believe? Guess what you do? You ask them the same question. You just turn the table. You start needling underneath their presupposition. And you look at them and you say, prove to me that your worldview is coherent. And I think you'll often find more than not, maybe with the exception of a tiny little intellectual subculture, that the ultimate questions of life And a formulated, comprehensive view of reality that governs their thoughts and actions is really absent. And maybe they'll be honest enough to concede some of those points, but usually not. You'll usually find that in every false gospel, in every false worldview, there is a hypocritical, contradictory uh, conviction right at the center of it. And all you have to do is pull out that hypocrisy and show it to them and be like, Your worldview is completely incoherent. It doesn't make sense. It can't work. And our apologists have done such a good job in this country that now the skeptics are having to come up with stuff like logic doesn't even exist, and that logic is racist, we've heard lately. and What? Those rules are beyond skin and flesh and bone. They exist, self-evident reality. You have to have thoughts that actually make sense together in order to even have a conversation with one another, much less debate the issues of ultimate reality. And so when they begin to come at your faith, how can you believe in that resurrection business? You ask them, well, what's your alternative? And as they begin to talk to you about how natural, our brother said earlier, right, how natural death is, you can ask them simply things like, how do you know it's natural? Well, I see that it happens in nature. Well, where would it come from? I mean, these are very basic questions. That you can start needling back at them like, so what's the alternative? We all die and that's all there ever will be and all there ever is? I don't know. I'm offering you resurrection. You're offering me eternal death. So it doesn't take a genius to have these conversations with people. Don't think that at all. We've let the world intimidate us far too long in these areas. And I'm not telling you to go throwing your weight around and pretending like you're a know-it-all. But I'm simply asking you to ask your friends to play intellectually fair with you. Probe their view of reality right back at them as soon as, they probe in, as soon as they start to probe yours. And I think what you'll find is that as Christians, we have a greater grasp of reality than the world could ever imagine. We we squarely say yes, there is sin and there is death. Matter of fact, look at a toddler. You don't teach them to be bad. You teach them to behave. They do bad all on their own. And why are people so so selfish? I almost said shellfish. So why are people so selfish? Why by nature are we looking out for me, my, me, 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 the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I? Why are we like that? And they have no answer. I guess it was part of random evolutionary processes. Well how about this? How about we chose to be sinful back when Adam and Eve made a choice and we know we're not supposed to be like this? Why do we know we're not supposed to be like this? Why do we hate selfish people, yet we're selfish people, if we're really honest with ourselves. Why is life so messed up? Why do I have to die? You got sin? You chose sin, you got death, just as God said. And what do you need? Rescue from all that. What is the gospel? Rescue from sin and death. I think we have a more coherent worldview than others. It deals squarely with the reality of humanity. From birth to beyond. Alright, I've I've beat that horse to death and beyond. (laughs) Now, As we continue to look through Paul's statements here we see that he gives the rest of the text really is him giving his evidence for his underlying worldview. And we've got the two things in front of us Paul's message, the Judaizers, authority and truth. And we're going to find that as he gives his evidence he doesn't just fling the two uh, things before us, the two messages before us and ask the Galatians to, hey pick one. But rather, he carefully gives his evidence as superior evidence. And so let's look at verse 13 and 14. And he gives his evidence for why his gospel is from God and not from man. This is where he shows the renovation of heart the gospel brought to him. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, he says, Notice what he says there. You have heard of my former life. This is common knowledge to them. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people because I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Paul says, you knew that I hated Christianity, tried to kill Christians, in the words of dear Alistair Begg, he said Saul of Tarsus in our day would be considered a terrorist. One who tries to kill others because of their religious beliefs because he felt threatened by them or something. We you know that Acts 9 verse 1 says that Paul was breathing out threats and murders at the church. And then he goes on to say that he was also, positively speaking, the most religious zealot and Pharisee of Pharisee. So Paul was on the Pharisee's side. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Philippians 3 says. He loved circumcision and law keeping. And he was zealous for it. And when he heard the Christian message from the earliest of the apostles and of the church, he felt threatened by it. And he lashed out against it with vehement anger and desire to see it gone. And so why in the world? Would Paul, who was in that kind of a position, have a change of heart for the gospel of Christ? Did he really, in his mind, come up with a gospel that compromised to the point to where he said, oh, okay, I'm a Christian now, but I'm going to do away with all my Jewishness. This was a guy who was killing people who were doing away with his Jewishness. So his first exhibit in his evidence that his gospel is from God is the fact that he was the guy who was part of the party that was against the gospel of God. And so where did his change of heart come from? Heaven or from himself? Look at me at verse 22 of our text. It says, I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea, They only heard it said that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He went from persecutor to preacher, from murderer to missionary. And how does this astonishing reversal come about? The question we have to answer is, did God change his heart? Or did Paul change his own heart and make up his own gospel and start preaching it to gather followers after himself? It doesn't seem likely because Paul was killing people who were following Christ. And now he's put, pitted himself against the entire known Jewish world that he was so zealously a part of. Seems like the gospel impacted Paul's life. The reason Paul gives for his pre-conversion life The reason Paul gives us this autobiography, if you will, of his pre-conversion life is to show how utterly improbable it is that he could ever have been alerted into the ranks of the apostles by mere human efforts. But Paul says Christ was the one who brought him in to the ranks of the Christians. Look at verse 15. When he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him from the Gentiles. I immediately did, and he goes on there. So Paul's explanation of his change of heart is conversion. He experienced Christ on the Damascus Road. Acts 26, 16 through 18, the Lord says to him, Rise up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and to bear witness about the things in which you have seen, and to those things which I will show you later. Delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And you know, it's just common knowledge, guys, that every effect has its cause, cause and effect. So Paul argues here that to try and explain his change of heart from persecutor to passionate missionary, apart from the gospel, is nothing but grasping at straws. God changed Paul's heart. And I think there's enough in that evidence there to say it's true. However, to tighten his case further, in verse 16, he even goes on to say that he did not, that, that after he was converted, he did not go up to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles immediately. See, Paul didn't understand the gospel to be. You're saved, now go study with the apostles. Not for Paul. He was the apostle born out of due time, remember. Rather, he did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, but rather he says, I went into the desert of Arabia. And then again, in Damascus. And only after three years in Arabia and Damascus did Paul finally go to Jerusalem and he only met with Peter and James, the Lord's brother, and none of the other apostles. And so commentators and biblical historians ask the question, what's Paul doing for three years? Well, obviously he was planting churches eventually. And he was preaching. But notice, from the moment Jesus showed up to Paul at Acts 9 and 26, as it's recorded you know, in two different places, that one conversion experience of Paul, the Lord Jesus told him that he would be a preacher in his conversion experience. I have chosen you in order that you might go preach to the Gentiles. Paul, from the moment he was saved, knew what he was supposed to be doing. And I guess if the risen Christ appears to you and tells you that you're supposed to be a preacher, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're called to that vocation of preaching. And so this is not the normal way men get called into the two offices that remain in the church, deacon and, and, and pastor. Christ doesn't appear to us and tell us to go be preachers and deacons. We have to discern through uh, scriptures and the uh, gifts the Spirit's given to us and the external call of the church looking into our lives saying that uh, the blessing that we're being to them and they could say, "Hey, there might be a preacher here and you got to work through that as a young man. I remember that. It was turmoil. I'm glad it's over. But these men, these apostles were taught directly of Christ. It's very interesting that Paul was in Arabia for three years and that the disciples, the early apostles, the 11 were with Jesus for three years i think paul was getting trained for ministry and we're going to find that he says things in other books of the bibles it sounds like maybe the veil of eternity was lifted and he had been taught by christ he likes to play this little game in corinthians where he's like i knew a man in christ who saw great revelations god spoke to him showed him things caught him up into the third heaven uh, and then later it says something like, it sounds like it's him, but because of those great revelations, I was given a thorn in the flesh. That, you know, he's trying to be humble in the midst of his uh, confession that, hey, I got caught up with the third heaven and Christ taught me some stuff even after his ascension. And so Paul is a unique and independent apostolic witness who taught exactly what the other apostles in Jerusalem taught. He just was not brought up with them, and he did not learn his gospel secondhand from them. But Christ immediately gave him his gospel. Christ immediately gave Paul his commission. And Paul got to work in Arabia and among the Gentiles. He's unique in the church. So don't try to, you know, every loose cannon rogue evangelist and pastor that comes to you and says, I've never been approved by a church, but God's called me to be here. Don't believe him. Why? Because, well, one, Jesus didn't appear to him like Paul and say, go preach. They have to be tested and proved, the scriptures say. But Paul's unique witness was God's perfect will for the earliest people of the church. And you see, people use the unique witness of Paul against Paul. They said, you you learned this somewhere. You persecutor of the Christians, you must have learned something and botched it up in order for you to become a Christian. And Paul's like, no, Christ showed up. Christ commissioned me. I preach the apostles' gospel. I preach the apostles' doctrine. I've not diluted the gospel. I'm sent to the Gentiles. I'm fulfilling my unique role. And we're going to let that speak for itself as evidence for the reality of the gospel and the reality of my apostolic ministry. This is not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. The good news that comes from God and accords with God's great heart of holiness and love. And that's what Paul Shows, simply. Let me close today with Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. You don't have to turn there, but you may if you'd like to. Maybe a Lord's evening reflection would be good. And I want to close like this because it is Easter. For those of you who call it that and celebrate it in your heart as such. Um, It is Easter. Of course, every Sunday is the Lord's day for me. Um, Where I commemorate his resurrection. But particularly, there's some sweetness added that other nations actually Proclaimed that today is the day of resurrection. Um, and Jesus, in the last week of his life, in what has been called Passion Week or Holy Week, came across the Pharisees again. And he asked them a question about authority and truth. And his question, to, and, and really they came to him first, right? And what did they ask him there in Matthew 21? They said, by what authority, Jesus, do you do the things that you do? And Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you'll answer me one see he probes their view of reality right back turns it on them. John the Baptist his baptism did it come from heaven or did it come from man and they conferred with each other in an unholy huddle and said what well if we say it came from heaven he'll be like why didn't we believe John about Jesus if we say it came from man uh, the people might stone us because John's a prophet So what's best to say here, guys? What's our PR going to be here? We don't know, Jesus. We don't know if it came from heaven or from man. And Jesus says, okay, well, neither am I going to answer your question. We cannot let the culture around us and our family who maybe we live with and love stand in the grandstand and bleachers of indifference and agnosticism and make pot shots at our life commitments as Christians and our commitments to truth And let them continue to do that without any pushback. Let the whole of the skeptical world come down and out of the bleachers of indifference and agnosticism and show us the evidence and coherence of their worldview. Come before us and show me how their view is not a human concoction and I'll show you how mine is from heaven and from God. Friends, Easter is the proof That's in the pudding that Christ is Lord. Think of the resurrection. Public public crucifixion on the outskirts of Jerusalem from a very famous teacher, Jesus. He's crucified, he's dead, and he's buried in someone else's borrowed tomb, Joseph of And it says that a Roman battalion is placed in front of it to guard it from his disciples and that a Roman seal was crafted and plastered into that tomb to show that you've messed with this tomb under the pain of crucifixion yourself. And the theories are that somehow Jesus and his disciples overcome a 600-men battalion of Roman soldiers, roll the stone away, which was mighty in and of itself, break the Roman seal, bring Jesus alive somehow out of the tomb, And then they go around preaching in Jerusalem that he's risen. Look, the tomb is empty. There are so many problems with that. Number one, it's an impossible scenario for them to overcome. Plus, unless you produce a risen Christ, that message doesn't take off the ground in first century Palestine. You see, if Jesus had not risen from the dead... Either Israel or Rome could have produced his body pretty easily and said, look, he's dead. But instead, the apostles say that he appeared to to them with infallible proofs and to 500 people at once teaching for 40 days the things concerning the kingdom of God. And these Jewish disciples' lives were lit for Christ. And what did they do? They went around everywhere dying for an ideology they made up. No, man doesn't die for something he invents. There might be some crazy people out there who die for something they think is real and it's not. But sound-minded people don't create a gospel and then 12 of them together give their lives for it under the most heinous forms of persecution and then convince their Jewish brethren and droves of others to believe it. It just doesn't happen. The gospel is not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. And I hope today has strengthened your faith some in it. Father, we come to you knowing that Uh, You have given us the truth in Christ Jesus. We are not the truth. You are the God of truth, and you have been gracious to us, and you have blessed us with Christ. And I thank you that I was standing on some mighty men of God's shoulders today, Josh McDowell, John Piper, some others who really helped me with this text and who uh, really have stood for truth and been a blessing to me. I'm just thankful for the people you put in my life to speak into my life, whether I've known them directly or indirectly. Lord, I'm not so smart that I figured this stuff out you opened my eyes and just as Paul's eyes had to be illuminated by the spirit to see the beauty of the gospel so I pray for my friends in this room that their eyes would be so illumined by the spirit of God to see the beauty of the gospel and to see their sins fade away in the blood of Christ to take his hand and be raised with him to newness of life we thank you for all that you're doing in our church Lord in light of this truth May Christ be more precious to us. May we love him and fear him more now than ever. Thank you for seeing us through another church here. And Lord, we pray that in your goodness, that you would make disciples through this church more over the course of the new one. We give this to you, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us integrity. Guard us from the evil one. And fill us with your spirit that we might be a church that's a beacon of light rather than a greater distraction or detriment to our community and to our world Lord we thank you for your plans that are good and even when we don't understand the hardships that you're working for our good grant us to be people of courageous faith who realize that underneath it all this ultimate reality who is Christ wraps us up in the hollow of his hand and he holds us he carries us through the pain and lord you are trustworthy grant that we would drink deeply from the waters and the wells of your salvation that our hearts might go high in holiness and love for you and we ask this in jesus name amen